When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Because then I got beat like, hello, welcome to Masterpiece Theater. Because I'm criticized constantly by a certain Here I am. Good show. See that you're born an Italian if you want your life to be great. See that you're born an Italiano and your life will be great. From the moment you're a small bambino, you eat pizza, you drink vino. Then they make you roly-poly. You get stuffed with ravioli. If your mama's a paisano, you will have the world on a plate. So see that you're born an Italiano and your life will be great. And if you are born an Italian and your life is great, you are at the right place. You are here with us on the Italian American Power Hour. Thanks for coming back. I am your friendly moderator, John Viola. And to my right, as always, is my partner in crime, the notorious P.O.B., the professore himself, Patrick O'Boyle, Esquire. And we have two very special guests with us today. Pat wants to say something. I think I'm going to come up with, like, cufflinks or handkerchief that has a broad ego sum P.O.B. <laughs> Hey, he likes P.O.P. Yeah, but I, I think it kind of works. It's going to be a friendly show today because we have some very dear friends with us. Uh, across from me is Jeannie Abate-Allen, who is the founder and CEO of the Center for Education Reform, and really a dear friend of ours. She's a dama of the Constantinian Order with us. She's in the fighting the good fight, and uh, we've all gotten to know each other really well over the years. And her son, John, John Allen, who is also a friend of the family, He's in with us today. John serves as the director of finance for Karen Polito, who's the lieutenant governor of the state of Massachusetts. And uh, as John points out, she is also a paisan. Mm-hmm. Right? Correct. Sicilian? Sicilian. Can't right. beat that. There are a lot of Sicilians in Massachusetts. There are. Many. Many in Worcester County, actually. A lot of, lot of um, people are, are the woods in Abilino, just as that Napoli in awesome. the North Shore. Right. Yes, there was. There was. And they, we just had a conversation. There also, some of the Abilino people went to New Hampshire. Now, who would have thought... There were Avalonese people in New Hampshire. They probably like thought they there was land. Yeah. There was land. There was some there was place a lot to be. Out there, yeah. yeah. Was there? I guess there was still manufacturing. Manufacturing. A lot in, of manufacturing. In southern New Hampshire. And I, I don't know. If, and I know in Vermont there was a lot of jobs in the quarries. I don't know if that made its way down to New Hampshire or out to New Hampshire. If, there, if you're out there and you know, let us know. Yeah, if Send you're the email from the northern reaches of these great United States and northern New England. 
or any part of New England, you know, we uh, we keep thinking about getting up there for a road trip and mm. seeing some. Of and Rhode people. Island, well, that's Italian Central. And Rhode, Rhode Island, Island, absolutely the best Italian stores in Providence. Amazing. Yeah, they got next great. to New York. Yeah, no, they got great. The world view in Rhode Island is very close to Jersey. I've been to in Providence, and I said these people think like us. <laughs> now, I don't know if that's necessarily a compliment. Certain kinship. They, there is a there is a kind of innate kinship. Jeannie's hesitating. I just want to say well, on the record, you can interrupt whenever you want. That's a power hour rule. We're so, not we're, okay. So Providence, here's a great story. This is not we, fresh air. We were having okay. So we were having Pasqua, Easter in Cape Cod, and my kids were driving up from Boston, and I said, "Oh my gosh." I don't have the flower water or half the stuff that I need for pastiera. Let me tell you, the flower water is the hardest thing to yes. buy. Uh, so, but I'm not a big orange. Yes. I, I'm coming to a new debate with that, so, but that's an Easter. All right, so here's the story. We've, we've, we've canonized. So I go, go to the store called, right. I forget, Johnny, we're driving, and then you get to the store, yeah. and what happens? Oh my gosh, we got to the store, and my younger brother, Anthony, who's incredibly fluent in Italian, just starts making friends with all the grandmothers in the store. That's not surprising at all. And uh, long story short, we found the flower water, we found all the ingredients, and then we stayed an extra half hour as Anthony talked to all the grandmothers and got all everyone's numbers. And, <laughs> and, and, and still in touch. And the recipes. And yeah, the but recipes. you know what? I think, but because because there's recipes, yeah. because there's a big Campania representation in that part of New England, mm-hmm. it was easy to get ingredients. Yeah. I don't think you could get them in New Orleans. No. Because New Orleans is Sicilian. Like I've said that. Like I don't think you could. Well, let's say San Diego or I'm San not, Francisco. Why you're why you're down on, on orange blossom water? Because to me, that's the essential ingredient. That's a whole other. That's a that's an that's a that's a that comes into the gastronomic fundamentalist group in Sorrento. We've had deep discussions about this. It's better. It is better. Um, I think, it, I think, I think it's, wrong. it is the flavor. No, no, but no, no. Hold on. This is what I'm trying to say. In my opinion, and I, I I've done some research on this, and I feel confident saying this is that. Orange flower water has evolved to become the it water, the it flavoring okay, for a Bastiana. Yes. But there were other contenders, like the Millefiore water. Some recipes, really, really old recipes don't put them in. I use the Millefiore. Sure, yes. and some really, really old recipes put in rose water. I use a little bit of rose water. And what I'm, what I'm trying to say is I'm not anti-orange flower water in any, any sense of the word. It's evolved to where it is, but there's now a competing school of thought that orange flower water was not necessarily the, the number one flavoring from okay. day one. So uh, I think what you're saying is we've na- the, 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 the standardization has become that all these other flavors have been replaced by orange blossom water as the standard. Over time, yes. Over time. And I agree with that, and I put all of them in line. So that's... In my opinion, it, there's another conversation. In Italy, grated cheese and... Shellfish, it's like now has become completely anathema, yeah. right? Was not always the case. So, if you go back to the city of Naples in the late 19th century, they did sprinkle cheese on shellfish spaghetti dishes. Um, because remember, a, a big part of the spaghetti, sp- spaghetti, the street spaghetti vendor, which is a Naples thing, but once you go into, let's say, Avellino or uh, Salerno, the Cilento, they still made their own macaroni, they still made fresh pasta because they were farmers and they had Durham. But there were, there were spaghetti vendors in Naples who would boil spaghetti and pull it out of the pot and just serve it on communal plates and they would just sprinkle cheese on it. So when like clams and mussels, with just the oil, just the, oil the clams and the mussels began to get married with spaghetti, there were people in Naples who were throwing grated cheese they on it, it in there. the 19th century, yes. right? So now these people are like, oh, this never was the case. Now you may say today, you could have spaghetti and, and clams and 
have cheese on it and say, this is disgusting, I don't like the taste. That's a judgment call. Yeah. But this, historically, it wasn't from day one a rule. rule. Because like in the Chilento, they fry anchovy stuff with grated cheese. But it's better. Isn't it better with cheese? Who, who Clam sauce? Yes. I like it. Uh, I don't mind cheese on it. Like there's people that are going to freak over this, but it's not it's gospel. Yeah, it's it's no, not. There is no gospel. I mean, look, I, in my family, we have a sepia recipe from Basilicata that we put cheese in the stuffing. It's a cheese and bread and uh, parsley stuff. Stuff, stuff sepia. Stuff calamari with mozzarella? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So myth busted. You can put cheese Probably. in the stuffing. I'm done. We're going to say about the bastida. I cut you off. I'm sorry. No, I was going to ask a question because I don't have anyone to ask this of anymore. But when I was growing up, there's pastilla, right? And then there was this thing that we used to go get from Ferraris called pasta chut. Oh, pasta chut, yeah, that's, that's that's ubiquitous the, that's in Jersey. The, uh, right, they're ubiquitous in, in New Jersey, Jersey, but they're sure. different, right? Yeah, they're pastry. They're, they're yeah, it's a complete. It's like a custard. Yeah, the custard cream that's in the pasta chut we got from the French because what happened was if you look at the Bourbon court, we had a lot of cultural ties with France. The court of Naples had very strong connections with the French. The French gave the Neapolitans pastry cream. Bechamel pastry cream, we got it from them. True. And in the early 19th century, it starts to go all over. So if you take the pasta frolla dough and you put the pastry cream in, you have a pasta chocolate. It's the a pasta beautiful is born. It's a beautiful it's marriage. marriage. And we owe France. I mean, we gave, we gave more to France than France ever gave to us. Sure. So, I mean, that's not even a question. France, but, but to your point, in New Jersey, they're synonymous. They're sure. one and the same. Because oh, yeah, growing up, I thought pastiera and pasta chocolate was the same thing. And when I went... Back to the old country in San Martino Valley, Caudina, where's where my father's from, they laughed at me. They said, oh, pastiche, what is that pastiche, pastiera? So I was surprised. So then I came back and I started looking around and I realized they're very, very different. Yeah. Because Italian-American bakeries had to bake something for everybody. Yeah. So that's why if, you, if, you're, if you're the bakery in Patterson or you're the bakery in Jersey City and you have a mixed community... Like, you're not going to go to Naples. We say cannoli. My cousins and I had this conversation. We say cannoli. That's no longer politically correct. You have to say cannoli now. Oh, no, I, I say cannoli. So if you don't know, that's what it is for, for whoever you are and not somewhere else in America. But the fact that they're sold in the same bakery with a babarum, which is completely Neapolitan, is because you're in New Jersey and you have a Sicilian customer and you have a Neapolitan customer. But in Sicily, you're not going to find a babarum in the in the pasticceria unless it's a specialty type thing, or you're not going to find the canolo siciliano in Naples mm. per se because they're, they're regional specialties. But you're going to find them in New Jersey because New Jersey's got everybody. How did we get on this? Can you stop it? We came here to talk about education. Now we're talking that's about pink. That's why we're on this thing. That's Who cares about education? Oh, stop you can't that. eat a book. You can't eat a book. That would be a great Italian cookbook. You can't eat a book. No, my grandma says, Amy, my grandma's like, why do you, why do you keep all, when I was kid, why do you keep all these books? Why don't you throw them out? Like, you've read them already. Your grandmother was not big on reading. No, I got my grandmother a book in her 70s, and she read her first book in her life, and it was... Uh, I have yeah, this before, right. This, yeah. Fred Gardafay's uh, Italian American Folkways was the first book my grandmother ever read. But my grandmother thought it was, it was like, um, impressive. It was, like, really good that I read, but she didn't understand why I was bothered. Yeah, Does that make sense? Yeah. But that was just the cult. That, that's a whole other that's, podcast. But that's the culture. That's the, that's that's the culture. Good, why, why would you go read a book when we could eat? Like that was the, you know, you can't eat a book. You know, it wasn't everybody's story, but for a lot of people, education equated a raise in, in stat, social status because education could get you a job that could raise the status of the family. But education 
for the sense of just knowing was not um, well I think one thing is that what you need to learn I can teach you you want to learn how to plant tomatoes I can teach you there's not you should learn but you don't really need to learn that much outside the family yeah which is a control. There's a lot. There's a lot of. There's a lot of sociological. Patrick, what you're saying is right. Until the Italians actually saw the people who were successful had education, yeah. right? So as they were fighting and scraping their way through the Bronx and Harlem and Brooklyn and wherever else they went. They're like, oh my gosh, we came here for vocation. We came, first of all, we came here for prosperity. We came here for the yeah, America. absolutely. We came here for the dream, yeah. hopefully the American dream, and we'd bring it back. Most of them didn't. Yeah. And then they realized somewhere along the lines they were tired of being looked down on. Yeah. And so how do you not get looked down on? Instead of just going to an amazing Catholic school to get your faith, we need to teach them something. And we are going to show you, and we created the greatest generation of Italian-American business people all Absolutely. across the country, yeah. and educators, and clergy, and you name it, well, because we did what we always do. We jumped in with a vengeance yes, you're right. to what we did, and we made, we made the, education ours. I always loved that the New York Times magazine had a, a phenomenal cover of story. I think it was 84 or 83, 84. I have a copy of it in the archives. And they talk about the 80s as the Italian-American decade. And I think you're right. It's because if you read 1971 New York Magazine, uh, Nicholas Pileggi writes The Red, White, and the Greening of America. And he talks about how low the education rates are for Italian-Americans. And it's like almost a, just a boom. It was like right at, 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 the, at the forefront of when we took off in this jump into right. education and the professions. And within 10 years, you're looking at the explosion of the Italian-American decade and, and the Scalias and the uh, arrival of uh, Mario Cuomo and Rudy Giuliani and Scorsese and Coppola and Lee Iacocca and right, all of these exactly. names that are sort of, you know, it becomes, I mean, we've got so much built-up potential that sort of explodes when, when we commit ourselves to education. You bring up Catholic schools. We were the last ethnic group in Catholicism to build parish schools. We were way behind. Like, like I would say, Holy Rosary in Jersey City, I could just tell you, the Italian parish, it was like 50 years after the parish was founded, they built a school. Because Italians didn't see, I'm a shoemaker, you're my son, and my sons can become shoemakers. we got to have a shoe business. And I said this, I feel, from what I've studied and what I've thought about this, Italy is a, is a very class-based society. And if you're the shoemaker's son, you could be really, really smart. Even if you did go to school, we're never going to let you into our social structure, our class. So you can go to school to become a lawyer. You're never going to move but up there. But that's what began the breakthrough. Later, and America right? gave them the breakthrough. Right. The, the, yes. thing, the thing that exactly we could, right. the, gift, the greatest gift America gave Italians was social mobility, which did not exist in Italy, right? I'm du Barona. I'm always going to be the count of the baron. And if you're a ditch digger, you're always going to be a ditch digger. Two of the most prominent Italian-American immigrants who came here in the 60s, both were scientists. One is Severino D'Angelo, it's in California, and the other one was Frank Arjona, who worked on satellites. Frank, unfortunately, has passed. They both told me very similar stories that um, when they came to America, they, they came from the, the agricultural class in their, in their hometowns, came to America, and they got an education, when they got their opportunity to go to college, and they really prospered, and, and they academically achieved uh, Severino in the automobile industry and science and um, Frank Gargione in satellites. Severino tells a story that he went back to Italy in his early 20s and uh, a member of the upper class in his town, nobility in his town, was like, oh, what do you do in America now that you're in America? And she was expecting him to say, oh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a janitor. 
or something like he said, you know, janitor, I clean up garbage. And he said, I'm an engineer. And she left. She goes, aha, is that what they call janitors in America? Engineers? Mm -hmm. Because she was almost taken aback. Like, how dare you, peasant? You know what's so interesting? It turns out that so many of our people are engineers. So my dad became an engineer. And years later, when I went back to San Martino and met the cousins in Caserta, they all have science brains. Flash forward, I'm working on an ed tech incubator in southern Italy because it turns out science, technology, the things that they do there, we don't They're hear fantastic. about. fantastic. Unbelievable. So, right? It's absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. Okay, so I remember hearing two stories as early as I could remember. And this, by the way, these stories were not just repeated for the heck of it. They were repeated to tell us why education was important. One was, your father came here. He was 10. He was put in kindergarten. Yeah. That happened to my father a lot. See? And because they didn't know anything and the teachers didn't know what to do with them, then they would treat them, of course, like dirtbags. Mm-hmm. Because you didn't know anything and you're sitting there in kindergarten and you're twice as old as everybody else in kindergarten. And eventually somebody recognized that he really wanted to learn and he eventually made it to the fourth grade and then fifth grade where he should be. That was the one. And the second was your father had two kids when he was finishing college wow. at NYU. He was going to night school. He was going to NYU. NYU. Wow. And and the reason he did is because somebody in high school grabbed him and said, are you really good in science? There's an engineering program at NYU. No one's going to help pay for it, but I bet you I can help you get you in there because you seem like you're really good. And they would use those stories to explain, A, don't complain. B, if someone expects you to do something, do it because you never know when someone, one of those teachers, are going to reach out to you and say, by the way, instead of just leaving you back in kindergarten or back in high school, we're going to help you move forward. What year did your father come? 37. 1937. Yep. So my father-in-law, who was a doctor, came in like 1966 or something like that. He was, you know, whatever he was, 10 years old, uh, maybe 12. And they put him in like third grade when he was supposed to be in eighth or whatever. And... He sort of sat in the back of the room, and they ignored him in the public school in New York City. And then a few weeks in, they started looking. They're like, well, you don't speak any English. You came from a small mountain town in Abruzzo. And they're like, well, his math scores are better than anybody's. Because in Italy, they were doing like advanced math. Yes. And the public schools in New York City and the Bronx were doing nothing like it. And they basically said, okay, you know, we're going to skip you back to like ahead of where you're supposed to be as long as you catch up in the language. And he caught up in the language, and he ended up going to Lehman going to uh, medical school That's in amazing. Bologna, the oldest university in the world, and becoming a, uh, a doctor here in New York. And he always says, he was like, I, I knew that they were ignoring my potential because I didn't speak a language, I wasn't assimilated, Unreal. but quickly they realized that the Italian system was academically superior. superior. And it still is in so many ways, especially in the sciences. Yeah. And so when you look at the U.S., uh, compared to all other industrialized nations... Italy is still above the U.S. alongside Switzerland, Germany, and most other subjects. When you look and you compare us on the international assessments. Why? What are they doing right? Why? Because they don't have a problem demanding rigor or making you feel uncomfortable. And the U.S. education system thinks, thought, for a very long time, still to a large extent, although there's pressure on them to do otherwise, that in order to be educated, we need to recognize your state in life. We need to recognize that you're coming into our classroom without the right supports and poor and hungry and all those things are critical, but poverty is not an excuse for lack of education. Our people knew that. 
yeah. right? If we actually sat and said, I'm sorry you didn't have pasta last night, you can't possibly learn to read, yeah. like we wouldn't yeah. be here, right? Yeah. The reality is that we all thought being soft and, and supportive and nurturing, which again are not bad things, was the substitute for people who maybe couldn't learn. And we do have, as President George W. Bush once said, the soft bigotry of low expectations. Yeah. In modern parlance, Say that again, that's like soft deep. bigotry of low expectations, which referred to the schools we have okay. in America that look at you and if you happen to come from low income, most people assume that you can't do well. Yeah. And so the entire education reform movement, you asked me, John, about what I do, the entire education reform movement was founded to demonstrate that that was complete, utter bull. Yeah. That that was not the case. And it was easy for me to do that and be part of that because... Had, you lived it. Right, I lived it. My parents lived it. I lived it. Um, there are a lot of people who still live it every day. And so Italy, France, Germany, other countries, certainly China, who's cleaning our clock, have no problem going, no, no, that's not good enough. Go back, go back. It's Without funny. being offended. My, my sister-in-law is... Uh, my brother and my sister-in-law have two kids, and she's dedicated to understanding education for, for her kids. And she was telling me about children's books in China and how, you know, the lessons in our children's books are like, you tried, it's okay, here's a hug and a trophy. And, like, the Chinese children's books are about the tiger that couldn't do it but finally did it through perseverance. And, like, it's okay to try again. And, and these are all things that you would think, I mean, are essential to the American dream. Our, our people have been a phenomenal... Um, exposition on that potential, that, that, that hard work, going back and trying again, not being turned away when right. you're in kindergarten and you're a teenager. And, you know, like, I, I look at my own family and my, my dad and his brother and sister both, they had absolutely nothing. My family was the poorest people in a poor neighborhood. And my grandparents were adamant about education and rigor right. and just hard work. And, and, and here's the other really interesting thing I think about our upbringing. You know, Johnny, who's sitting here, my son, has also taught, and so you could speak to this. But um, women, where I was growing up, like many families, were matriarchal. My grandmother, on my mother's side, who was half Sicilian, you know, it was, you know um, Campania as well as Sicilian, her dad, the women worked. My aunt became a milliner, she was making hats. My grandmother was making clothes, which is why eventually she opened up her own clothes shop in Patterson. It was like, you just work. You do what you have to do. And what they would say is not, you gotta go get an education because you don't wanna do what I'm doing. Actually, they were very proud of what they were doing. They were saying, you gotta get an education so people like us can scale our businesses, yeah. right? They yeah. weren't going like, that's superior. They yeah. just knew that you could do more. more. You could do more. And so the expectations that Americans have for people who come from less are low. Yeah. And the expectations that our Italian families had were high. Yes. And that's the distinguishing feature. You know, it, it, it's, it's interesting that we, we have these conversations in terms of poverty, right? Because the idea, like, we have low expectations for those who are coming from lesser economic circumstances. But the truth of the matter is, in the, in the popular psychology, we have low expectations for those who are coming from better economic circumstances. It's not like we're more rigorous on the kids that have more. I mean, the, the standards, the idea that you don't want to upset the apple cart, you don't want to tell somebody, hey, you didn't do that right, go back and do it again, or you lost, you, you, you didn't win first place, you don't get a trophy, that's gone. That's gone from the... From I, think, the I think we've created a myth of false self-esteem. Yeah. Because instead of saying to students, 
you could do better or you should know that or you should be ashamed of yourself that you haven't oh studied God. or done whatever. Shame. It was awesome. Right, but if if the, the toughness in the classroom now I'm not talking about someone who doesn't have the capacity. Yeah. Or someone who has done their best. Yeah. Now I feel it's like a false self-esteem because a real self-esteem comes from you could have done better on this. Go back and do it again. I'll tell you what. When I learned this was when I was working. At a, I, I worked at a school in Brooklyn for three years. I was the executive director. Did their fundraising and, and oversaw a lot of the operations. And I will never forget. We were a little bit radical. We were a radical Catholic school. We were very rigorous in our standards. Very strict. And we got great results. Fantastic yeah, result. That was that was on the board. Ap- uh, one of the greatest one of the greatest experiences of my life. It really was. It was a very it's special place. I I got a million times more from that school than I ever got from being that they ever got from me from being on that board. Oh, that's very kind of you to say. I mean, we really. I mean, it was a great experience. But in our first assessment, which I was a total neophyte to the, I not no background education, and we had our first assessment. I remember someone coming in and just being completely, um, I don't want to say disgusted, but completely scandalized that we had kids sitting in rows, that we were marking papers with red pen. They said, oh, you can't mark with red pen. And I'm like, we said, why? And I said, well, it's damaging psychologically for the kid to see red on the the test. And you can't sit in rows because it's stifling. And I thought to myself, it's worked for like, at that point, I had 250. And we both know who he is. Exactly. And I had my own personal discussion with this individual who we don't need to name. Because the teachers had the kids raise, raise their hands. And one thing that everyone remarked about the school was how tranquil and well-behaved the kids were, how peaceful they were. Because you had expectations. They, were. they had expectations yeah. that right. we had. Absolutely. And the kids had to raise their hand to answer. And this quote-unquote educational consultant came in. And mocked us and said, well, no, no, they should just be yelling out answers. And my response was, well, what we're tr- we're, besides them giving the answer for what, what is 2 plus 2, they're also learning how to wait online. Yeah. They're also waiting, learning to wait their turn. They're also learning to be polite. It's order. And I was laughed formation. at. Formation. Right. It was formation. For education and formation. And I was laughed at by that individual, the quote-unquote expert who came in. Um, that I was living in the 1950s. I said, so what you're teaching the kids is just chaos, right? <laughs> so you're teaching them to like scream all over each other. So that the kid who maybe doesn't, maybe the timid personality is now getting plowed over by the strong personality. I mean, there's, and, and we were just completely dismissed because we were not buying into whatever the pedagogical trend was at that time. And, to blow, and, to, and to blow the myth, our school was made up 100% of children below the poverty line. And I mean, yeah, I'm yeah. so proud of that fact. That school was made to give the best possible educational opportunities to what the Bishop of Brooklyn at the time termed the poorest of the poor. Yeah. yeah so this was not it. this was not a... Most of the families were, were not, none, 100% English as a second language, if English at all. Well, that, you have that Well, even more though. Yeah. But, yeah. but some of our some of our parents could not even speak Spanish because they spoke Quechua exactly. and they spoke native languages That's... in Mexico. So their Spanish was poor because Spanish was their second language. Yeah. English was their third language. Yeah. And those kids just prospered. They just yeah. they just exploded with 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 excellence in that school. And it was under uh, kids who were living under in a, in a in a rough area of Brooklyn, uh, parents who worked multiple jobs. That's what made me fall in love with the school. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea that we came up with was that the school was going to be based around family and around um, 
taking in, returning the Catholic schools to what they could be and taking in kids that were the neediest of the needy and basically a donor-driven model providing for a, an extended education day where these kids came in for three square meals and the families knew that we had them and in return for this investment in their lives, the families signed a covenant to participate in the faith and family formation. Mm -hmm. So they'd come to mass together every Sunday with us, uh, all the families. They would come twice a month to family and faith formation meetings. And it wasn't always, you know, proselytizing. It was simple things like how to open a bank account or because you were immigrant they were immigrant families so it was like the tools to give them our family were immigrants and we were given everything by the education system be it catholic schools or in my father's case the public high school in brooklyn at Mm -hmm. tech and then eventually the united states military academy all three of which were schools that were that were provided excellence was provided really for those in need because you know the catholic schools in many cases when you couldn't make the bills they understood that and they kept you in the school it was not right. about the money or in Brooklyn Tech it, exactly. which is a public school that, that, that is here for excellent education these select city schools or eventually West Point where you're actually paid to be there I mean you know it's and the all, school is a tuition free school it's all tuition free yeah so those the tuition are the that work, but those are the schools that work when you do what you're talking about when you actually recognize that there are families that want to be encouraged these by the way this used to happen automatically. We forget that the U.S. didn't have a public school system until a bunch of folks led by Horace Mann in the late 1800s decided we had to get a hold of the this, not melting pot, this ra- these ragged yeah. people from all these different languages who happened to espouse this very crazy religion that liked icons like Madonna's <laughs> And we better figure out a way to get them on the on the straight and narrow for America. Until then, the kind of school you're describing that you guys helped build, John, was exactly the norm. Yeah, they were family, they were church based, they were community based, and it's what we're actually moving back towards more and more now with new kinds of independent Catholic schools, charters, lots of different things. We we have to have that. I mean, the, the thing about education is it really is. I mean, again, I'm not an expert. You're the expert. You tell me. But it seems to me it's a local family pursuit in a lot of ways. I mean, it's an intimate pursuit education. You, you can't just put somebody in a conveyor belt right. and expect them to come out like they're on right. a factory line. It just doesn't make sense right. to me. And the only reason I don't like the word local is because it it has become like synonymous with school board. There's nothing local about a school board. No, no, the 10th, I mean, right? The 10% yeah. of people, but, but intimate? Intimate and family, family and community-based, totally, yeah. Totally, but the, the, yeah. This makes me think about the Heights. I mean, the, the whole purpose, so I, I attend an all-boys school in Potomac, Maryland, Temple High School, and their mission is all about forming young men fully alive in the liberal arts education. And it's all about this community, this connection between forming men while communicating with families on how to build the best young men we can build in, in our communities. And I feel like if they had that model, the model that you're all talking about, high expectations and a family connection, I mean, families were encouraged to attend Mass with us you know, during, during the week even, you know, aside from Sunday, um, daily during the week. I feel like if we encouraged that, even in our inner cities, in our gateway cities, especially Massachusetts, I feel like we'd be seeing very different schools. But to build on the point you made about high expectations, I mean, my wife teaches at a, uh, a charter school now called Brook Charter Schools in Boston. It's one of the top public schools in Boston. They were only founded in 2002, and they're the top public school because they have high expectations. They're able to blend 
Kids, this, yeah. kids will meet those expectations. Right. If you set them for them. Sure. You have the, to set the, them, yes. Yeah, and you have to believe that they can do it. You have to emphasize that every day because that message might not be emphasized at home. And so it's your job to try and be a parent as well, be a mentor, be a teacher, and work with the parents to make sure that the parents are mirroring what's happening at school. Because when a kid goes home and they're seeing a, a, a different instruction, different structure than what they're seeing at school every day, it's all undone. So if, if we can work with, and I, I say if we, as being a former educator, if we can work with parents at home to set expectations that the kids are seeing in school, then it's a, then it's a full cycle and kids are actually growing. The, the, school, the, yeah. the, the school can only work as far as the family reinforces it through exactly encouragement. Right. Exactly so right. if kids know that the parents expect the kids to work hard and do their very best and push themselves, the kids will. If the kids are, receive a message that school's not really important or right. when are you ever going to use this and everything else, the kids are going to react because their predominant compass in life, their parents, if the, if the parents don't point them in a direction that education is important, mm -hmm. they're going to write it off. The seed for this podcast, this actual episode was, having been on the board of John's school, mm -hmm. I often felt that the John's family's vision for the school um, was very much an Italian vision, yeah. right? Because it's the family. Yes. I mean, mm -hmm. think of the name. Uh, it, it was called the Family Academy. And when and when great. I was first asked to be on the board, I was like, "What is a family?" I'm like, "I, I it's like a family academy." I mean, I didn't quite get it. But then when I got we, there, we did make it up. I mean, it was a yeah. great term because what it, what the message of it was like, "We're going to build the family." Right. So we got so many letters from parents. Um. Again, who who like I said, English was their third language. Who had Bare, base, barely a grammar school education in their home country saying the kids were educating them because while we were educating their children the children were bringing that knowledge home they were bringing that formation home so by educating the children it was a trickle down effect into the families and it was and the idea was to make to take off the pressures that the family had because pressure is, a, is just a, it's just another uh, weight that can break families right so the idea was that these parents are working 12, 14-hour days. So the school kept the kids later, helped them with their homework, so you wouldn't have the stress of having to pick the kid up or a latchkey kid or having to go home to an empty house. You know, we went longer into the summer because, number one, the kids were in a, in a rough neighborhood home alone. The parents had to scrabble to find something to do with the kids or someone to watch them. But also because they came from parents who did not have the same educational opportunities at home in their own country, they, the kids already right. started out at a deficit because the parents gave them the best they had, but they didn't have as much to give them as parents who were in very rich neighborhoods in New York. You know, we got beat up one time. Someone came in and said, oh, your numbers are terrible and they're horrible. And, and I said, you, you're trying to compare our kids right. with numbers that are across the whole city of New York, which includes the Upper East Side, the Upper West Side, some of the most best educated, uh, wealthiest people in New York have the best resources. Give me the 10 worst schools. Compare us to that. Compare yeah. us to yeah. the 10 yeah. worst. Because our kids... Apples were, to apples. Yeah, and yeah. our kids were running because our kids were, were progressing quickly. And I said, by the 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, they're going to be eyeball to eyeball with those other kids. Yeah. But we need the time. We got to put more resources into them in the summer and after school to catch them up where they needed to be. Rigor. Rigor. And what I'm saying is the reason I, I see in the podcast is it was... An, it, the family, though, was always the point of the education. 
We're going to help the children succeed. We're going to help the parents learn English so that they can be engaged members of 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 the of the United States of their, well, of their and communities. And that's, and that's how actually even mediocre education was still a benefit because families were so engaged. And part of the challenge here is that we allowed ourselves to believe that we could give and transfer all of our kids and what they need to an institution. Yeah. So somewhere around the 60s, 70s, we decided that institutions could replace the cultural familial stuff you just describing, Patrick, about you know what you guys did, family institute, what charters do, what lots of schools, different schools do, you know, Catholic, whatever. Um, and we thought, well, this is the way we're going to educate the masses. We're going to have the institution, this thing called school systems and districts do it. We'll feed them and we'll clothe them if they need it and we'll support them and we'll have the after school and before school. But the problem is they were missing the element of people who actually are grounded in making sure that Pat and John and Jeannie and whoever get to the next level because every kid's needs are individualized. And now we're finally getting to a point where around the country, everyone from like Chan Zuckerberg, which is the Facebook fortune, to other folks are like, we really understand that we have to have individualized education. Todd Rose from Harvard, who was a welfare dad, who is now Mr. Big, if you've never heard his podcast or read his stuff, read it, wrote a book called The End of Average. Because what he did, does is he actually recognizes that what schools have done for so long now is we went from this individualized, we understand the community and we are resourced and helpful to, we're gonna treat everybody the same, and there's gonna be this average, and that's where we are, where the rest of the world, including our beloved country, Italia, is still recognizing that every community has different needs, every child has different needs. And you know, we talk a lot about education from the Italian American perspective on this show, it comes up in a lot of episodes, and we may not be the best culture, or we may not have been the best culture from the start around the value of education here, but the idea that an For cultural but, purposes we brought with us. Yes. Because some people are gonna question that. Yeah. But the idea that an institution can replace the family is completely anathema to our DNA. So, so the idea that it's, it's a family affair, the education, the formation of this child, that is really who we are. Whether yes. or not we were approaching it for all those years through education, we were still forming our kids in the family model, in the um, kiln of that sense of uh, togetherness. And that, that's, to me, the, the core of what it takes to create a functional human being. This idea that you come from something greater than yourself, that you are accountable, not just to yourself, but to others who are in this journey with you, that you are a component part of a greater success story. I would wager that's at the core of the Italian American experience. If you had to if you had to boil down who we are, it's the idea that our strength is derived from the inner security that we are part of something greater than ourselves. I really, really believe that. And what we did and what great schools will do now is, hey, I think you would really be a great artist. I think you'd benefit Correct. from a school that does X. I think, have you ever thought about playing this sport? Have you ever thought about music, yeah. right? Or I really expect you to walk in your father's footsteps yeah. or, or not. Yeah. Like that's what great schools do, but how do you do that when you have 1,500 kids and you've been told that everybody is the same? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the goal is just to get them across the finish. But I, I think but the other question is that 
I think we, we're seeing now that everyone was pressured to go to college, and not everybody. That's not the best road for everybody. Oh, don't go there is, with me. Don't go there with me. I'm stop. I'm going to stop you. Okay. All right. All right. Good. All right. Good. Yeah. Go no, ahead. no, no. I'm gonna, I'm no, gonna, no. What I'm trying to say is that don't do this. College isn't for everyone. Thing. I have better. I have a better one for you. No, but I, I'm all. I'm always, but but <laughs> college. What I'm trying No, I think that what I'm trying to say is college. Our current colleges are not for everyone, mm-hmm. in the sense that some kids are not inclined to traditional academic pursuits in a post-secondary educational setting in the sense that when they're done with high school, I think that we need to come up with a system where kids who want to learn a trade can learn a trade, but also get the benefits of higher liberal education that will give them the tools they need as citizens to be good citizens and incorporate what they do into the bigger picture of things. So here's the rub. Okay, what I would argue is that when we make assumptions about what kids can do based on what they've done, which is based on the schools they've gone to, which is based on them being zoned by zip code, so you have a student who most, a majority of students still in America go to school based on where they live, and there's zero accountability for their traditional public school, and so they may be that kid that fell through the cracks. And then we want to say, oh, yeah, you're kind of dopey on math. What we really need, though, is some manufacturers, right? We need to turn it around. Not all colleges are for everyone, but higher education is. Meaning yeah, I, well, exactly. 100% the learning. same. Right, and, but... and trades might be great, but wouldn't it be amazing if, like the discussion a few years ago on the, on the debates, Maria, uh, Marco Rubio got caught in this, well, what's wrong? You know, we need welders, and somebody said we need philosophers. So I'm like, why not both? Yeah. Why can't a welder be a philosopher? Because I might go and want to get a BA, but I shouldn't feel guilty that I actually want to be a welder because I'm going to make. But that's exactly what you, my point. But my, don't prevent. But me, my point is not even the money. I my point. Go ahead. Don't right. prevent me from going or pushing my child. So we should be pushing everyone to go to the farthest, fastest. Whether it's on ground, online, what we shouldn't do is send them to these little country club four-year institutions anymore, like frankly my kids went to and I went to, which is like drinking 50% of the time, and it costs an exorbitant amount of money, and then say that we're superior than the person who is actually helping build my bridge, yeah. my airplanes, or my boats. But that's the last vestiges of okay, a, of a, of a... I just a, need an argument, John. A class <laughs> base. Okay. What kind of show? Yeah, but I think I... What, what I'm trying to say with this is that I agree with you 100% because what I'm saying is there's, a, there's an academic apartheid in America that the plumber's job is, has less value in, in our social standing so a kid goes for a four-year degree, and the fact that they get a four-year degree gives them more weight in our society, not what it should be in our society, than the kid who goes to become a plumber. And when your toilet breaks, you're going to be up a big creek because the, the, it, it takes a lot of brains to be a plumber. I agree with that. And it that. takes a lot of uh, uh, brains to fix an air yes. conditioner when your air conditioner yes. breaks. but I just don't want you to go become a plumber. And, no, nobody. And I, if it's no, not no, what no, you're... No, no, what I'm going to say is I don't want you to just become a plumber and then we decide that you're not going to have history 
Right. No, and I'm exactly on the same page. So I was at an event with a lot of people who were very supportive of uh, a very cool group, and it was a lot of donors, and the guy from Dirty Jobs, Mike Rowe, was there, and he's like, seven million jobs, you know, aren't filled, and college isn't for everyone, there's all these people applauding, and I looked around the table and I said, and how many of you have looked at your kids and said college isn't for you? Yeah. Not one of you. Yeah. So that's my rub, is yeah, if right. we were, so right now it's happening to poor kids. If it were Italian-Americans 70 years ago, they'd be saying, like, don't go to NYU, Frank. Francesco about don't go right. to NYU. Go down the street and become a bricklayer by your father because your, fa your, your father, You're my right. grandfather, was just yeah. like that. So I just worry. I want them to know about our country. I want them to understand yeah, of what course. it is to be an entrepreneur. I want them to think they can have their own Why can't they learn about day? music and opera? My, my friend has Absolutely. a Ford. My friend Thank has you. a Fordham. My friend Mary Grace, who I think is listening has a Fordham history degree and she's a master baker. Beautiful. And people and, and people walk into her bakery and because she's an Italian American in a family business of artisanal pastry makers, they just assume that she has no education because she's a baker and she's Italian, right? So she's just like, you know, hey, 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 you know, that crap. And she has a Fordham history degree. She made a choice. Exactly. To go into the family business, right? Of, which is an art, right? right? So when you're when people come in with these whacked out, you should hear some of the requests she gets. <laughs> whacked out, you know. The, the, we've gone into like cake, Armageddon the wackiness, and you know. So it's before they wanted like a nice cake with almonds on the side of rum cake for the kid's birthday. <laughs> And now they want a, a cake shaped like Superman, and it has to be co-coordinated M and M's yeah. on the cake. So you try to go and do that, High right? Expectations. Yeah. So <laughs> you know, a baker is a chemist. Yeah. You know, and and you know, uh, uh, my friend Anthony Violante, I got another shout out, who um, as a family went graduated Seton Hall with me. I think he was. I'm pretty sure he was in the business school, and then he went back into the family's uh, butchering business, but right? You said, but you said a really important word. Choice. Choice. So no, we're all about that. But what's happening is, not to bring it full circle, but it's what I do for a living, um, we have traditional and many, many schools who will confine people to a lane. Yeah. And so until parents and families have control over their kids' education, and they're the ones who can say, Mary Grace, it's amazing you're going to form a history degree. We'd love you to have a bakery. Whatever. Like, there should be all of these options on the table. We act like it is still 1950, and there are two options. There are thousands Yeah, but that's social class. I think it's a class thing because yeah, I had a life-changing event when I was in college, and there was a guy by the name of Richie Bonanno in North Arlington. Uh, he lived well into his 90s, and I had a friend, my friend Adam. I know he's not listening because he couldn't care less about this, but he, um, he was in architecture school at NJIT, and Richie would ask him, a million questions. So you have this old guy in his 80s, pushing 90. He was a tailor in town. Best dressed guy I ever saw. He was the last guy who always wore a hat everywhere. <laughs> and he would ask my friend question after question after question. And we're like, why is this guy annoying us with all these, you know, why is this guy asking all these questions? And then he said to us one time, it was like a melancholic moment, and he said that his parents were from Sicily. His father got killed in a paint factory because his father was in Newark and he worked in a paint factory and he heard that the paint, another paint factory down the block was paying 10 cents more an hour. And he took the other paint factory job making paint 
to bring home 10 cents more an hour. He got killed. I think he drowned in a paint vat. And his mother was left with all these kids. And so Richie, who had dreamed of being an architect, couldn't become an architect. He had to become a tailor to support the family. And I said to myself, oh my God, what jerks we are. We have the opportunity to go to school. And Richie's asking these questions because this was his dream. He's 80 years old. It's not, you know, he's, it's, he's in his 80s. And he's and I'll never forget. He goes, you know, I always want, I always dreamed of being an architect, and my father died, and I couldn't go to school. So yeah, we hundred percent. If a if a kids should have the opportunity to pursue what they want to pursue, what they have the capacity to pursue. Yeah, and I just don't trust most people who are sitting in schools to make that decision. And until parents are totally engaged, who's going to decide? My argument is, and why I wanted to bring this discussion to the power hour is. Italy has a strong tradition of respect for trades. Now, it was a a class-based country, so the college professor and the doctor and the lawyer didn't have dinner in a lot of places with the plumber. And the plumber, if they wanted to be a doctor and a lawyer, couldn't move up. But the talented seamstress or the talented tailor or the talented plumber was respected because they had a trade. It was a different mentality. So you are an artistic tailor. So... My argument is because we're, we're living in the last vestiges of this old world mentality that affected here as much as everyone else in the world, you may be brilliant, you, you are brilliant, and you want to become a tailor. There's no reason why we are equating social status. A person who's going to make a custom suit, that's a, that's a brilliant person. They, they, totally. they deserve the same place at the table. Or the guy who's going to fix your, when, you, when your toilet breaks on Thanksgiving and you house, have a house full of guests and you make that emergency phone call, please, please, please fix my pipe so I have water and, I can, and the toilet's running and I can use my sink. That person brings a, a tremendous skill set to, to the table. And I feel that as a society, we didn't recognize that because the only person who could go to school for a university degree had to have money. Right. And now we're past that right. in the world. So the social stigma that goes with he's a plumber that came from the old world, that's a lot of a class-based stigma because that plumber is a really smart guy because that is not easy work. Right. Or the guy who fixes your right. car or the guy who has the... the, the adapts. Or, my grandmother, who is the seamstress and paid for everyone in her house in the Brownstone, in the Bronx, including three different families that were part of her family who eventually bought the house in Ridgewood, New Jersey, never had the education, but if you wanted anything made or done, she was literally, she was the pillar of society in her community yeah. because that's where she was. And we don't accord that today in the same way. So I get it. I get yeah, but there's a, and the negative is that the kid who chooses to become a plumber, if they're interested in music, why don't we provide schools where you could take six credits of opera and yeah. music studies and also learn how to solder pipes? Mm-hmm. And I think some people think that's crazy, but I think it's I think it's it's, it's a future. But it's a very Italian mentality because it's the baker who's an artisan who creates art every day with his bread that thinks that his bread is the best bread but in the world. That's the answer. The Italians just ran America. <laughs> we wouldn't make be America Italian. Italian. But, make America he's, Italian. And he's the baker who, who dusts himself off and goes to La Scala or goes to the Better Opera House in Carlo and Naples. And, and that's an artist. And we don't recognize. Right. And we don't right. recognize. And my thing also is that I feel, and I don't know, I don't know who to blame it on. I'm not, I don't have that kind of expertise. 
But I feel now in education, we as a society only value classes or, or, or pursuits of knowledge that return uh, uh, money, right? So and why... Those jobs do. A lot sure, but I'm saying, like, like well, why, why do we have to teach these kids yeah. about music or history or mm -hmm. art? Because if we neglect the liberal arts education, the arts, we're going to damage the citizenry mm -hmm. and we're not going to have a well-informed public because as, as we work... I always confuse democracy and republic. Isn't this terrible? We, we're, we're a democratic, we're a democratic republic. republic, and the fact is, we rule. We rule our. Uh, we could debate that we for a whole other pie. We represent ourselves to an extent, but that's a whole other story for another day. But do you want? And do we? How much better off we are with a well-educated populace? So why are why are we constricting liberal arts education away from trades? Because. That, that everybody deserves exactly. to know. They should know. They should know history. They should know music. They should know art, art. and they should know how to solder and be an expert. And how to write. And how to write. Okay, sure. I'm gonna tie it all together right here. Um, I had the pleasure of uh, helping start a brand new boys' school in Millis, Massachusetts, called Sparhawk Academy, and it's a liberal arts education. You're learning philosophy. You're learning religion, you're learning um, the arts, you're learning how to, to be an excellent writer, you're learning all those things that are so integral in being part of the liberal education. This summer, they offer programs, and during the school year they offer programs of how to be a woodworker, how to be a craftsman. They're offering all these trade-like classes so that you can bring everything together. And I think that's just an incredible opportunity because a lot of schools don't have that. Never had have this chance for it. You shouldn't have to pay. It should be the public money that we're actually raising from taxpayers to pay for education, it should be part of what everyone gets to choose. Yeah. We have that's to a change. whole other discussion. We have yeah, to that's... change the expectations of what an education is really. That that's the bottom. Yeah, and so because we're not we're not saying as a society, and this is where I, I, I bring this to the power hour, you should learn about art, right? How many Italian immigrants came to this country who were church painters? Right? They painted beautiful mm -hmm. paintings in churches. Or they were plasterers, and they did beautiful plaster work. Or they were stonemasons, and they did beautiful stonework. If we look at them today, we're like, you're an, they were artisans, right? But we wouldn't encourage a kid to go into that today, right? And now, my question is, as AI comes in, like, truck driving is the, is the number one profession in 29 states. As technology begins to... Um, Dominate. dominate and destroy and take away jobs like truck driving, we're going to be left with a lot of people who are humans and who have souls and who have value and, and who have talents. What plan are we making as a society to say, okay, like for instance, I think that take an Italian moment in American history, the WPA during the Roosevelt administration went and decorated post offices, the beautiful post offices. I mean, you go to some of these post offices and they're pedagogical the tools. The art is beautiful. The art is beautiful, but it's teaching. Like, you know, there's, a, there's a, a post office by where I live, and it has, you know, local history. Granted, in a new world, people are not going to mail letters like they did or, or the like. But uh, the paper's coming back. Sure, but if you walk into this post office, that WPA artwork is absolutely inspiring. And why aren't we having these conversations? Like, I would say all the time, at the Second Avenue subway that's coming here into New York, it's an opportunity to build an absolutely beautiful subway station. Who's having that discussion? Beautification is kind of like dismissed now because it doesn't. It's not going to. It's not a return on the dollar. Public beautification. Yeah. Beautiful bridges, beautiful train stations, beautiful airports. 
And I think that it's a conversation Italy gets. America doesn't get this. Yeah, that's very true. Like, the kid today who has the capacity of art, of a painter, to, have, to be something on the level of what 100 years ago would be a church painter, who would paint these beautiful murals in churches, where does that kid get to use their art today? That goes back to we say we value trades, we say we value education, but real education would be like... But the, the person, if the, the person who wants to become a welder, they should be able to be in an, academic, an institution where they could also learn about art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but right so now that, they become a welder because they are convinced they can't afford, don't want to, don't need to, or aren't able to do more as opposed to choosing to go there because it's going to fit in their lifestyle. Yeah. I choose we, to we be, stigmatize right? a lot We stigmatize it, and part of the stigma is because we are not saying to Pat O'Boyle, I think that you're amazingly talented and thoughtful, but it turns out you want to be working at home five of ten hours a day, and this is the best profession for you. We have so much potential to change pathways. You can work at home. We're going to have to. You can work at home. The technology is going to change everything that we're not going to have a choice. I mean, they're recruiting people in Tulsa with $10,000 gifts to work in like a WeWork just to get people in Tulsa who can work remotely. Wow. Like, stuff that's... And by the way, again, China is kind of ahead of us on this. They've got so many billions of people in rural remote areas. They're figuring out how to provide this access and we're still in these cookie-cutter molds of... You grow up, you go here, and look, I think tradition's great. If you can go to a four-year residential college and it's a good school, that's great. If you can go through a training program, if you can become a lawyer, I think it's awesome. I think all those things make sense, but they shouldn't cost what they cost. They shouldn't reject or stigmatize, as you said, John, a trade. It should be, it yeah, but, should be equal. But let me ask you a question as someone who's in education on a national level and a professional level. How long is the system going to be able to bear these exorbitant costs before something goes? I mean, how are kids today going to be able to go to a four, you know, a, a four-year college, like seventy thousand dollars a year? They're graduating a two hundred eighty thousand dollars for a four-year degree. That's a mortgage. That's a house. Now, if they marry somebody who went to school with them, that's five sixty. So, how are they going to have the capacity? to be home purchasers and to have a family and to become the bricks right. of society. Right. And well, I don't think any of us are having these conversations. This and is I why, think, well, they're a lot in higher ed. This is why like people like Mitch Daniels, head of Purdue, uh, has Purdue Global, which is you know just a bargain for Purdue classes online off of, off of the campus. It's why Arizona State University is having these campuses. By the way, the head of Arizona State University was a Columbia president. Southern Hampshire University is delivering you online a $6,000 price point for a great liberal arts education. By the way, they're doing it also in high school. There's dual you got to give adjuncts. There's dual enrollment. you got to help. Yeah, you got to adjuncts is a problem. Here's the answer. We can't bear it. We know it. We shouldn't be loaning, giving money to do it just to do it. But it also has to go back to K-12 where we're spending an exorbitant amount of money and one of the reasons we're paying so much money and not getting a bang for the buck is because we graduate kids and we have to immediately educate them or they don't have what we're talking about. So we can't. And here's the good news. Um, 
Millennials are going to be like, what? You want me to pay what? I mean, they question what a, gla- a cup of water costs. Do you think a that's true? Water. I, I feel like I'm an older soul. I, I, my sister, who's a millennial also, and we're six years apart, we see things very, very differently in terms of cost. And, you know, for, here's a good example. In terms of, we're talking about housing and mortgage and how much education is costing. My sister would rather not save money but spend more money to live in Washington, D.C., the center of where everything's developing the Navy Yard then live outside the city and save money. Whereas I don't have a problem with sacrificing my need to be close to the city and close to everything to save money and live outside. Because I'm okay taking a little bit of time to get in the city. And I think, I mean, every millennial is now at the core of Washington. I'm in the Navy Yard or U Street or DuPont. Yeah, I wouldn't call them frugal, but I would say that they are selective about how they spend that money. And I I guarantee you they're going to look at, from what I have been, I mean, I, I... I'm 36. I don't think of myself as a millennial. I'm not in that category. No, you never, you don't qualify. Thank God Almighty. Uh, But there are, I think, many of them that I've encountered that are more worried about how they spend money. It's not so much they want to hold it back and put it under the mattress, but how are they going to spend the money? Is it going to be on a a lifestyle experience, a lifestyle or a life experience? And and they're seeing a lack of value in education for sure. And, And that's not to, you know, downplay the importance of continuing education, but. It, it's you just not getting. The I think they're going to grow up though, and they're going to say, "Why would you spend that kind of money on your education?" I agree. Not for what you're getting. Not for what you're no, getting. No, not what you're getting. No. Exactly. And, but I think that I don't know. We have so much more to offer because how many like um, you could be in Italy, right, and you could talk to a high school kid, and they know the wines of the region because part of their patrimony, they know their own patrimony, right? But they know the cheeses, they know the culture, they know the history. Because yeah, all that stuff, you say, what, what's important is that? It's, it's, it, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a gastronomic products are a huge part of Italy's income, right? They know the art, they know the history, they know the background. And even if they didn't retain a lot of it in school, they've been exposed to it. Right. We're not even exposing it to it. You know, we're, we're, we're failing these kids because we're robbing them of their patrimony, be it the artistic patrimony of, of civilization, the history of civilization, a philosophical thought. A theological thought, everything across you, the board. You get to the point of really why we do this show. It's a great place to wrap up. The idea of preserving and keeping an awareness for who you are, where you come from, what makes you you, what makes you part of something greater. It's why we do this show. And it's why a lot of these shows exist. And, and that's why I believe a platform like these podcasts is, is a tool in disintermediation or education. Because how are we going to validate spending hundreds of thousands of dollars and going into debt? When you can learn directly from experts in every field on your iPhone and download the heritage of who you are and, and thoughts on the future and everything in between. So for us and our mission, this is what it's all about. It's about keeping knowledge, keeping education, keeping information out there and getting it out there to more people. And that's the, that's the whole mission. So first and foremost, thank you guys both for coming in and visiting us at the Power Hour. Uh, it's always nice to be together but it's extra nice to be together and put it out there in the world and preserve an important message. So thanks for being here. Thank you. uh, you. We welcome back anytime. So from all of us, the Italian American Power Hour, thanks for listening. We hope we've spurred some thought. We hope you will share your take with us on this great challenge and and opportunity for education in the United States, Italy, and the rest of the world. Civilization. Civilization. Pat's an educator. You have got the world on a plate. So see that you're born in Italiano and your life will be great. See that you're born in Italian. 
If you want your life to be great, see that you're born an Italiano and your life will be great. See that you're born an Italiano and your life. 